We are in a year-long series that we've been calling The Whole Shebang, looking at God's overall story. And here as we're finishing up the year, we're also kind of finishing up this overall story, and we're looking at the final tab in your binder, if you have one, entitled The End. And last week, the, the title of the message was The Dragon. We're looking at some pretty uh, strange symbols and imagery in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And, and today, if you've seen the title, the title of uh, this morning's message is The Woman on the Beast. How cool is that when you get to go to church and the titles are The Dragon and The Woman on the Beast? It's, it's okay. Well, anyway, uh, anyway uh, turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 17. Again, it's the last book in your Bible. And there are parts of Revelation that are absolutely difficult to understand. Uh, If you have read it, you would know that absolutely firsthand. But there are other parts of it that are crystal clear. Let me read with you Revelation chapter 17, beginning in verse 3. John, who who is the writer of this book, he's in prison and he's writing to seven churches. He says, he's giving a picture of this this revelation that he received from God. Verse 3, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittered with, glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and of the abominations of the earth, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. See, this is one of those sections that just makes absolute clear sense first time read. <clears throat> if you would with me. Now, I know some of you are way into Revelation. I've talked with some of you, and for whatever reason, this is a very interesting and compelling book for you. And some of you, some of the women are taking a Bible, a Bethmore Bible study right now with our women's group, and you're jumping into this and diving into this. I think it's important as we continue to look at the book of Revelation, this is a book we have to enter into with great humility. We have to enter into this and be careful with, with sayings like, this is exactly what it means. I have great reservation when I read or hear someone who says, this is what this means. This is the one understanding of how this means, and everybody else is wrong. Just want to be a little bit careful with that. The woman on the beast has been identified as a number of different entities over the history of the church, over the last number of uh, centuries. In the, in the 8th century, in response to the nation of Is, uh, uh, the, the Islam and the development of, of the Muslim people, that the, the Is, Islam was viewed perhaps as the woman on the beast. And then in the 16th century, during the time of the Reformation, which we looked at when we looked at the time of the church, that the Roman Catholic Church was referred to by some as the woman on the beast. And then others might see the woman on the beast as some religion that we have yet to have encountered something that is still a part of our future. We need to be careful with with reading that kind of thing into Scripture. One of the things I learned when I was in seminary, it may have been the only thing, but uh, one of the things I learned was this concept of hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is the idea that we need to enter into our understanding of Scripture with great integrity, 
We cannot bring our own current modern situation into what we're reading in Scripture and say that's what it must be referring to. We cannot bring a 21st century circumstance and bring that into Scripture to say that's what the Scripture is referring to. We can't do that with 16th century events or 8th century events. We cannot go into Scripture and have it say what we want it to say. We have to let the Scripture speak rather than going into it and saying this is what we want it to say. Even though it's a temptation for us is to go, go into it that way. Before we ask the question, hermeneutics basically says, before we ask the question, what does this mean for me? Particularly with tricky texts like this, we have to say, what would this have meant to the original audience? This is a real letter written by a real person who was really in prison writing to seven churches. It's a real letter. What would John have been writing by the power and the authority of God working through him? What would he have been intending What is our best guess of what he would have been intending to mean to his audience? Read with me the last verse here in chapter 17. The woman you saw, the woman on the beast, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. For for someone in the first century, what would have been the great city that rules over the kings of the earth? It would have been Rome. The Roman Empire was at its peak at this point, and it was still climbing. And so with great humility, I believe that the woman on the beast is Rome. That's what John was saying. That's what John was was communicating. Let me back up a little bit. Verse 2, he says, With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. There's this metaphor that the rulers of nations around Rome were having an inappropriate relationship with Rome, uh, adulterous relationships because of her power. Jump down to verse 6. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Here at this time, the emperor of Rome was was a terrible man named Nero. And it said that he decorated his front yard with crosses of Christians burning in the night. Burning in the night, that was his decoration. It was the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Jump down to verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. And Rome, you can look it up. It is Rome. Rome is referred to sometimes as a city on seven hills. It's built on seven physical hills. And so it is a reasonable hermeneutic to say that the woman on the beast is Rome. This, this place, this, uh, this Rome is also referred to in verse 5 as Babylon. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of prostitutes. If you remember back in Jewish history, the second tab in your binders labeled the exile. It's the second half of the Old Testament that often we're less familiar with than the Exodus story in the Old Testament. That The exile is equally important in terms of Jewish history. 
That's when they were exiled, kicked out of Jerusalem, kicked out of their own land, kicked out of Judea. And if you remember, they were kicked out by the Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar came from Babylon. So Babylon has a history with the Jewish people. And it says here in uh, chapter 18, beginning in the next chapter, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. Here what John is saying is that the woman on the beast, Babylon, Rome, will fall. He has an image of the future that mighty Rome would fall. Now for us, that's just history, and perhaps it's interesting. For them, this was absurd. This was inconceivable that Rome would fall. Rome was the most powerful empire the world had ever known uh, uh, up until this time. It had technological advances that were equal to no other. No one would challenge Rome. They had control over the seas with the Roman ships. They had control over the land with the building and the development of Roman roads. They were in tremendous power. This era has been referred to as Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, because they, had, they were so dominating in terms of the world that the world was at peace. No one dared challenge Rome. No one dared. No one even tried for hundreds of years. Didn't even come, didn't even come close. There are a few minor you know, disputes within Rome. There are some battles outside of Rome, but generally the world was at peace. Pax Romana. And it was at this time that a guy named John in shackles, imprisoned by the Roman government on the island of Patmos, still able to see and hear about the oppression of the Roman Empire, is in that circumstance that he says, Rome will fall. Rome, mighty Rome, will fall. It's inconceivable to which one might say, I do not think that word means what you think it means. Okay, sorry. But it's, it's, it's inconceivable. It was, it was, they could not have, have imagined the possibility of, of Rome following, of Rome falling. Now, a reasonable question here is, if that's what John was trying to communicate to the seven churches, why didn't he just say that? Why is he going to make this so difficult for us to understand? Well, we need to remember that the mighty Roman Empire did not have a First Amendment. They did not have the freedom to say what we would have the freedom to say. It would have been instant death for him as a prisoner to say, hey, would you hand this letter out that says, you guys are all going to drop you know, down? That wouldn't have happened. It would have been a death sentence to anyone who would have received this letter. So John had to write it in code. And he wrote it to, um, to the uh, uh, Jews who would have understood what Babylon was. And it was a code. Rome is going to fall. Now, there's a little bit of background context information, a little bit of history there. So what does this mean? A good hermeneutic first says, what would this have meant to the original 
listeners. And then we can say, so what does that mean for us? Rome, for them, was literally the most powerful and oppressive thing they could have imagined. It was so powerful for them. And so I believe Rome represents that which is the most powerful thing we could imagine, the most powerful and oppressive thing that we could imagine. The woman on the beast, Babylon, Rome, represents the most powerful thing, an oppressive thing in your life. So the question is, what is your Rome? What is the Rome in your life? Maybe for some of you, that's an easy question. Boom, something comes up instantly. It is that thing that you have been dragging around for your whole life. Maybe it is the substance abuse. Maybe it is pornography. Maybe it's some kind of sexual struggle, sexual temptation. Maybe it is an addiction of some sort. It is an inappropriate relationship. And boom, you know what your Rome is. But maybe for others, it doesn't come quite so quickly, what your Rome might be. Maybe it's something that's a little more discreet. Maybe it's something that you wouldn't instantly see as a powerful, oppressive part of your life experience. Maybe it's something that is powerful and oppressive, but you don't see it that way because maybe it's even celebrated in our culture. When we go have an interview, we, typically we're going to get uh, trained and prepared for the question of, you know, what's your weakness? And so then we often have to spin the question, you know, well, my weakness is that I am an incredibly hard worker and I'm ruggedly handsome. <laughs> you see, I could never say that because I'm not always a hard worker. Uh, and I would want to be authentic, you know, and have integrity with that. So, but maybe there's some Rome in your life that is a little bit more discreet. It's something that's a little, that again, it could be kind of embraced or accepted, maybe even celebrated at times in our culture. Where is work for you? Is work such a powerful draw and pull for you that it is an oppressive thing? Maybe there's some kind of hobby or game that is that has power in your life that when you sit back and think about it, it has a little bit too much power. Maybe it is a roam in your life. Maybe it is, it is an obsession about your body, about body beautiful, that at some point there's been a shift from health to obsession. Where might that fit? And how might we want to respond to that? In an effort to identify what your Rome might be, I want to throw a few questions up on the board to maybe stir something up within you. What might your Rome be? Would those who know you and care about you say that there's a problem? In other words, there might be something that you don't see that others see. Do you continue to do it or participate in it when you do or could hurt someone? Is it the thing you go to when you have a bad day? Do you get upset when it's not available? Is it leading you toward isolation? Away from people? Is it something that is done in secret that no one knows about? And finally, have you been unable to stop? And this is so often connected to the concept of addiction is that it's one thing to say, oh, I can stop any time. It's a whole other thing to have tried to stop. It's not the perception of whether you can stop. 
It's the reality of whether you can stop. And if there has been an attempt to stop that has been unsuccessful, maybe something has more power in your life than it should. Maybe that is a Rome in your life. I believe all of us are addicted to something. And so it's just identifying what that might be and what kind of power that might have in our lives. John here says this ludicrous idea that the mighty Roman Empire would fall. Inconceivable. Yet, now, centuries later, we obviously know that it did. And this actually has been a fascinating part of human history, the fall of Rome. Many, many books have been written over the past centuries trying to look at how could that empire with its history and its strength and its momentum, how did the Roman Empire fall? It's one of the, it's one of the huge questions of, of the human story. How did the Roman Empire fall? Maybe God knew that it would. When it did fall, there was a leader in the church named Augustine. And if you remember a few months back when we were looking at the story of the church... We looked at Augustine, and we looked at his writing called Confession, the Confessions of Augustine, and talked about the role of confession in our lives. Well, he also wrote a book that was equally famous called The City of God, and it was actually in reference to the fall of Rome. City of God was addressed to those who were, whose minds were blown by the ludicrous reality that the mighty Roman Empire had, had fallen. And so Augustine writes this brilliant book uh, connecting with the fall of Rome and identifying this thing called the city of God. Identifying the fact that all human empires are going to fall. They're all going to fall at one point, but there is one, the city of God, that will never fall. And it's even referred to later on in the book of Revelation, referred to as the new Jerusalem. This This is the one empire that will never fall. And he's wanting to give assurance to to those who are followers of Christ, to say, connect yourself with the power of God, with the city, with the city of God. John here, in the book of Revelation, is using whatever images and poetry and, and imagination that God poured through him in his writing. Whatever way he could, he repeats himself throughout Revelation and gives these incredible pictures to help us understand, particularly here in chapter 17 and 18, that whatever your Rome may be, however powerful and, and invincible it may seem, that it is merely a, 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 a struggling prostitute on the street compared to the power of God. That's what he's saying here in chapter 17 and 18. That your Rome, your obsession, your vice, your struggle... It can be beaten. Even Rome could be beaten. Your thing that you've been carrying for too long, John wants to say, it can be beaten by the power of God. Now for some, that is good news. Maybe even for some in the room here, you're going, I need to be reminded of that today. I need to be reminded that even my Rome can be beaten. 
Some who want to seek freedom from that oppression, who no longer want to be underneath that yoke. That's great news. But for some, the idea of Rome falling actually comes across as pretty scary. Some don't want that to happen. Jump with me to to chapter 18. This is where in the first section, John says, fallen is Babylon. Fallen. Babylon, Rome, will fall. It will fall. And then he describes two different responses to this. The response of those who lament the fall of Rome and those who rejoice in the fall of Rome. He begins with those who would lament in verse 9. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her, at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city! O Babylon, city of power, in one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls. And he goes on and on and on to talk about the financial implications of Rome falling. The merchants would lose tremendous wealth. Jump down to verse 17. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin every sea captain and all who travel by ship. The sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin." These are the groups of people who are lamenting the fall of Rome. And that is in contrast to the next verse. Rejoice over her, O heavens. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. There's a contrast between two groups of people and how they respond to the fall of Rome. We have the kings and the merchants and the sea captains who are lamenting the loss of their power and their wealth and their opportunities in contrast with the saints who rejoice with the fall of Rome. As you think about what your Rome might be and you think about the reality of it falling by the power of God, what would your response be? Would you lament or would you rejoice in that? Truly, truly. I mean, how would you respond if your uh, boss at work says, okay, now with your laptop, we are going to have uh, tremendous uh, accountability and check systems so that we're going to limit what you get to use your laptop for when you're uh, in private. And that might have an effect on, how you, on things that you uh, experience through your laptop. Would you lament that or would you rejoice in that? How would you respond if you're in a relationship with somebody and you know it's not a healthy relationship, it's not an appropriate relationship, and that person breaks up with you, would you lament that or rejoice in the fall of that Rome, that power in your life? What if you realize that there's a need for you to cut up your credit cards that you understand financially this is taking you down the wrong path. And so as much freedom as you you feel like that's been given you, it's time to cut those up. How would you respond to the need to do that? Would you lament that? Or would you rejoice in the freedom that may come out of that? How would you respond to the fall of your room? Would you lament 
or would you rejoice? See, I think it all comes down, just in closing, it all comes down to power. Where do we see the great power in our lives? Are we adhering ourselves to the power of this Rome in our lives or to the power of God? The kings, as we read there in uh, chapter 8, he says, Woe, woe, O great city, Babylon, city of power. There's this lure and there's this draw to, this, to, to Babylon, to Rome, to the, to the woman on the beast as having so much power. And that's what we may be drawn to. But Augustine, when he wrote City of God, and, and John here as he writes Revelation says, you know, in the end, no matter how powerful this Rome might be for you, there is only one superpower that's going to stand in the end. Only one superpower. It's not going to be Babylon. It's not going to be Rome. It's not going to be England. It's not going to be the United States. It's not going to be China. It's not even going to be Canada. (laughs) All All these earthly powers will fall. There is one power in the end that will not. The, The point of revelation is God wins. So whatever your Rome might be, we get to decide if we are going to adhere to the power of, of whatever, might be, um, whatever might be the Rome in our lives or we adhere to the overall power of God who rules through the end of the story. What we're going to do is uh, something, if you're new with us, something that we uh, do on, typically on a Sunday is we have a, a, something called a response time where you'll have the opportunity to respond in a number of different ways. And perhaps some of you uh, need to come to the cross today and, and let go of a Rome in your life, something that has been powerfully oppressive that you need to be reminded of today that God has more power than that Rome. You can come for prayer. You can come light a candle. In the center back is communion. You can either take it uh, uh, on your own as a family, as, as individuals, or you can be served by folks who would love to serve with you. Communion is for those who are followers of Christ, but we practice an open communion. If you're visiting with us, we'd love to have you join in with that. The, the bread and the, and the cup, they represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So we invite you to respond to God. And, and during this time, we're going to leave those seven things up on the screen for you to just kind of reflect on what your Rome may be. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, we in here in this room in the 21st century have no clue what it would have been like to be under the oppression of the Roman Empire. Just, we just experienced such incredible freedom here, and we are so thankful for it. We have no clue what it would have been like to be under that kind of power and that kind of oppression. But there are persons here in this room who understand a comparable level of power and oppression spiritually or emotionally because of a Rome in their lives. So God, I pray by your power that you would come into this room and that you would remind hearts and souls here in this place that you have power and you have authority over any Rome we could possibly imagine. We trust you in that. We lean into you for that. We adhere to you and your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.